I truly believe, the council truly believes, that National Pharmacare's time has come. That is Dr. Eric Hoskins uh, speaking yesterday at a press conference, and the council he's talking about is the Advisory Council on the Implementation of National Pharmacare. He was chaired uh, by the Liberal government to look into this, and he's back with his report. He's also on the show. Dr. Eric Hoskins, welcome to the program. Good to have you on. It's good to be on the show. All right, so uh, yesterday we received the announcement about the fact that uh, you have, uh, you and your experts on the panel have come back with your recommendation, and it might not be exactly what the Liberals were looking at uh, at getting into. It's a universal pharmacare program. How would that work, and why are you recommending it? Why is the time now? Well, it's called Universal Single Payer Public National Pharmacare. It's a bit of a mouthful, I know. Um, but essentially what it means is that we would treat access to prescription drugs similar to how we approach access to hospitals or emergency rooms or family doctors or specialists. So we would um, we would have an approach where we would quite simply make it affordable for all Canadians to get the prescription medicines that are prescribed to them by their healthcare provider. And in fact, when we spent the past year talking to thousands upon thousands of Canadians crisscrossing the country, going to every province and territory, what we heard unanimously was the the belief by Canadians that access to prescribed drugs should be based on need and not ability to pay. So why is the time right now for universal health care? Because you did say that. Well, um, it's partly because uh, prescription drugs like never before offered incredible promise to many, many Canadians uh, not just in a life-saving capacity, but also for individuals who are, for example, suffering with chronic illnesses like rheumatoid arthritis or Crohn's disease. Uh, so there are great innovative medicines that are providing, are really changing the lives for the better and changing outcomes, health outcomes for the better for so many Canadians. At the same time, however, they come at a great cost. Um, so uh, it's partly Pharmacare will help to reduce those costs, but it's also to reflect the fact that we found that about 7.5 million Canadians really struggle to pay for their prescribed medications. And as many as a million Canadians actually have to cut back on food or heating in order to afford their medicines. And so that's really not acceptable. I think we all agree, and uh, National Pharmacare will address that. You put the price tag at about $15 billion, and um, you're hoping that access to drugs will save money in the uh, healthcare system because fewer people will be heading to uh, the emergency rooms because they'll be taking the proper drugs they require. Is that correct? Well, that, that's one part of it. So we estimate that um, through National Pharmacare, the model we're proposing, once it's implemented, in that first year, it will save about $5 billion directly, largely due to a decrease in drug prices. Um, at the same time, we had studies done for us that show For example, even just looking at three illnesses, heart disease, respiratory illness, and diabetes, uh, by having National Pharmacare, it's estimated that it will save our health care system more than a billion dollars a year. So there are both direct savings to the program, but also indirectly in terms of savings to the health care system. And then importantly, because I know $15 billion is a big number, but we need to look at the other side of the equation, too, because National Pharmacare is estimated, once it's implemented, to save Canadian families and households on average $350 a year. 
and disabled businesses uh, approximately are on average $750 per employee. So there are incredible savings to be had by having a more efficient and effective system. Ian Lee is a business professor at the uh, Carleton Sprott School of Business. He was on the morning show with Mike Stafford this morning, and he thinks that your numbers are off based on um, an expert from the uh, PBO. Here he, here he is talking about it. The PBO, nonpartisan PBO, staffed by, by economists and statisticians and mathematicians, did a huge study only a year and a half ago, and they said the net total cost is $20 billion a year, more, and Kevin Page pointed out that that will take a two percentage point increase in the GST to pay for this, and to give drugs to people like me who don't need help. So if it's going to cost us with a raise in the GST, if their numbers are correct, what's the point? Well, it, it, we're not recommending that whatsoever. In fact, I think we recommend against any change to the GST. Um, the question is whether the fellow that was interviewed believes in, uh, that it's important that that million Canadians that have to cut back on, on food and heating whether it's important to provide prescribed medicines or that family with a child that requires a drug that costs a million dollars a year that's unable to afford it, um, whether they deserve it. Or quite frankly, you know, people in precarious work or contract work or part-time work, which are predominantly women, Indigenous people, youth, uh, whether they in fact deserve access to medicines. You know, back in the 60s, there were people like you're the, indiv- the individual that you interviewed mm-hmm. that, that believed in a fill the gaps approach uh, to uh, universal health care. If we had have followed his advice or the advice in the 1960s on the fill the gap, we would have an American-style private health care system in this country. So I guess we just disagree. You know, I think that when, um, when it, it's so important, and we all know people who struggle to pay for medicines, either in our households or in our communities, that those that we've created a model which is fair, which treats uh, prescription drugs like prescription drugs in hospitals are treated, right? Because they're provided free of charge, uh, and so it's a it's a program which is consistent with the values that Canadians have that were expressed in the Canada Health Act and through universal health care. I want to, you know, I understand that you were curious on where Ian Lee sat on the people that needed drugs that can't afford it. I'm going to play another clip, and and maybe this will give you some insight and ask you to respond to it. In this 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 recommendation is that they are using the 20% who need help mm-hmm. and using that as a justification or an excuse to give free drugs to all manner of high-income people like me, mm-hmm. professors, senior public servants, um, MPs, free drugs when they don't need them. It's a squandering of scarce public resources. If indeed the 20% need help, and they do, let's be very mm-hmm. clear, they do then let's focus like a laser beam on the 20% and not be giving free drugs to the 80%. And I'm referring to people in the top two quintiles of income. And this is public servants, senior public servants, professors, medical doctors who make a half a million to a million a year. Don't begrudge them that. But we should not be giving free drugs to deputy ministers and assistant deputy ministers who make 200000 300000 350000 a year. Focus the resources on those who need it, not on those who do not need it. So he's in agreement with you that that resources should be focused on people that need it. But if his numbers are right, and that's only 20%, why universal uh, pharmacare? Why not targeting it it like most social assistance programs are? Well, because drug prices are going up by 6.5% a year. So we heard from employers, from the insurance industry, from many, many Canadians, 
uh, from province, every province and territory saying that this is unsustainable. Um, if we do nothing, uh, the price that Canadians pay for drugs in this country will roughly double uh, in the next 10 years to the point where, you know, I'm, it's fortunate that the gentleman that you interviewed self admittedly is wealthy. Mm-hmm. There, are many, there are many Canadians that struggle today. The problem is you can't identify the, the so-called gaps that he's advocating for because the majority of people that can't afford their medicines, interestingly enough, actually have some form of private or public insurance. And so the, the system as a whole, this mixed public-private system is an anomaly in the world. It doesn't exist anywhere else in the world because of its inefficiency. We have more than 100,000 different drug plans. We're not talking about taking anybody's medicines or their choice away from them. In fact, we are welcoming the private sector and private insurance to to continue to have a role, as they do in every other country that has uh, universal health care and national pharmacare. The challenge is um, the, the... To advocate the position that the gentleman is advocating takes us back to the 1960s because there were many, many people saying the same thing, just target those that can't afford the private insurance for hospital and and medical for senior family doctor or specialist. Um, Those individuals who advocated for fill the gaps and those individuals who advocated for now, we would have a very different healthcare system. We would have an American-style private healthcare system in Canada today. The, The fact remains is the overwhelming majority, overwhelming majority of Canadians are in support of national pharmacare. And so we spent a year, uh, unlike the gentleman opposite, I suspect, or that you interviewed, we spent a year speaking with thousands upon thousands of Canadians from all walks of life. This is what they asked for. They asked for it to be based on need and not ability. Dr. Hoskins, I just want to go back a, a second here and rewind if we could. Uh, you know, I didn't want to interrupt and break in there, but did you say that this plan would allow private insurances, insurance companies to continue to exist? Yes, as they do. How, how would that work? Because, first of all, why would they continue to exist? Because if you're offering businesses a chance to say, okay, we're going to drop our plan, wouldn't that wouldn't that affect the insurance industry? I mean, why in God's name would a business want to keep paying the 750 bucks per employee if the employee was going to be supported by the government's plan? Well, if you look at provinces like British Columbia, uh, if you look at uh, other countries around the world, uh, business has stepped in and modest British Columbia government, for example, allowed um, uh, private insurance to cover the co-payments and deductibles uh, that are required under the public plan. Uh, drug insurance uh, is a small percentage of the profit of insurance companies that provide health benefits. Um, and there, as in every other country that has national pharmacare, there continues to be an important role for private insurance. And also those savings that employers see of say $750 per employee. There are many, many employers that we spoke to that are very uh, enthusiastic and anxious to be able to invest that money either in uh, higher salaries, which in fact it is in lieu of today. Uh, So invested in higher salaries or uh, other uh, health benefits like vision or dental or mental health and wellness. So there's there's a tremendous opportunity. Uh, and part of the reason why we have an eight-year transition period is to enable the private sector to adjust to this. But the reality is already the private sector, uh, through uh, employers are struggling to be able to pay for these drug insurance plans through private insurance. And they're finding ways to offload more and more of the costs onto the public system today. For example, the high-cost drugs, they're requiring, not even suggesting, they're requiring um, clients, uh, 
employees that have private insurance to actually go through the public plans for high-cost drugs. Uh, they're ask, asking employees to pay a greater share in terms of co-payments. They're having annual limits on what they'll pay for, lifetime caps in terms of the amount of mon- money that they'll uh, reimburse uh, employees for. So we found not just in the public systems, but in the private side as well, it's a, deter- it's a clearly deteriorating system that is soon, if not already, at the breaking point. And that's why we've advocated for rather than a tweaking of or sort of so-called fill-the-gaps approach to actually transform it uh, in a way which has been proven in other jurisdictions around the world. Dr. Hoskins, uh, I know it sounds like I'm coming at you, and the only reason why is because there are questions. You know, when you hold a press conference, it's uh, it's easy to get the message out and explain what you want to do. But uh, there are people right now that are working in, you know, pink co- color jobs in the insurance industry, and they're curious about what might happen. Did your study look into the potential loss of jobs in the insurance industry? We certainly had many conversations with the insurance industry. They were an important partner in this, uh, and it was an important part of our work and our research. Uh, Again, some of the measures that we took where we have a very specific recommendation where we uh, recommended the government that private insurance uh, continue to play a role uh, as they do in other aspects of healthcare, as you know, um, and that they, uh, and also to have a transition, a stepwise approach to pharmacare, but a transition of eight years, uh, which will enable both on the employer side as well as insurance side for them to adjust to national pharmacare. Um, it is a small, a small portion of the profits of uh, insurance companies with regards to their overall profits from health benefits that they incur or that they receive through employer-driven plans. Um, but this is, this is, you know, we spoke with employers, large and small, and you have to remember as well that, you know, there are many, many businesses uh, that do not offer any benefits simply because they cannot afford them. And as I mentioned earlier, if you're in precarious work or contract work, or if you um, are part-time, the chances are that you won't benefit, you won't have those sorts of benefits as well. So it's important that we look at uh, that, and choice is critically important, and no one is talking about taking away uh, any of the choice or the benefits that people have. Uh, there's room uh, for private to continue in this, in this plan. Uh, we expect that it will. Um, and certainly that, is, that has been the proven case around the world where uh, models of national pharmacare have been implemented. There's always been a continued role for private insurance. Dr. Hoskins, I imagine you've spoken with the Prime Minister on this and the results and your recommendation of uh, universal uh, health care. Where does Justin Trudeau sit on this and do you think he's going to use it as a campaign um, uh, you know, platform? Um, well, you'll have to speak to him and uh, you know the various ministers where this is a relevant file um, but I, what I can tell I mean it was the um, this government that uh, of course created the council in the first place uh, and demonstrated their commitment to pharmacare and as recently as the spring budget as well where they announced half a billion dollars annually towards expensive drugs for rare diseases um, as well as the creation of a Canadian drug agency that will uh, work towards creating a national list of drugs called a formulary as well as um, have the ability to negotiate with manufacturers to to bring down the price of drugs. What if you've got like a rare condition and you need uh, a drug that not many people need? If there's a registry of uh, what drugs are supported, could you still be left out in the cold even if we get a universal uh, pharmacare program? No, I, we've made recommendations that I'm confident will make the situation much better for individuals with rare disease. In fact, um, uh, organizations that represent uh, patients and families with rare diseases have 
uh, commended our report yesterday, um, and we uh, call for a specific uh, stra national strategy on expensive drugs for rare diseases, as well as a distinct pathway for their approval. Knowing that, and so, and many of those drugs will end up uh, on the list. Uh, and but but because one of the challenges with drugs for rare diseases is that sometimes the evidence isn't as strong uh, because the numbers, the patients' numbers are so small. So we've advocated the creation of a distinct pathway that will take that into account and be, in a sense, sort of more hopeful and more generous as towards what the impact of that drug might be and actually focus on individual patients and making that those drugs available to them and then monitoring them very closely uh, and perhaps asking the pharmaceutical companies to play a greater role and or co-fund it in the initial uh, months, uh, but but it's a it's a, a, a an approach a pathway in fact that was uh, if not created by certainly advocated strongly by those in Canada uh, who have rare diseases themselves and I was very um, you know privileged to be able to have those meetings and I think bring forward their recommendations for this. Dr. Hoskins, you worked for uh, over a year on this with the Advisory Council and tasked with coming up with this plan to implement this national pharmacare system. When do you hope to have it fully implemented? Well, the plan is for the work to begin immediately, and some of that is, uh, as I mentioned, the commitments in the spring budget on rare diseases as well as a Canadian drug agency. Uh, um, the first major implementation for availability of drugs would be January 1st, 2022. Uh, and then it would increase so that it would be fully implemented uh, no later than January 1st, 2027. I want to thank you for your time today. And you've spent quite a bit of time with us. And uh, thank you so much for uh, being uh, open about, you know, some of the tougher questions that I've asked you. I get a lot of tough questions, but that's, you know, that's what's important is for us to have this conversation publicly, right? And I think one of the great opportunities of an election cycle is that this will be a conversation and a debate uh, leading into the, the election, and Canadians will have an opportunity to participate in it. I appreciate your time. Thank you, Dr. Hoskins. Thank you.